Welcome, everybody, to episode episode 32, Parkinson's Cell Therapy. I am Dr. Christopher Fasano. He is Dr. Yosef Gannett, and this is the Stem Cell Podcast. What's up, Yosef? Yo, I'm I'm kind of pumped, man. This is this is right up our alley right here. We got a uh, right Malin Parmar coming on, and uh, she's gonna be talking about this most recent. You saw how much press this got, huh? It was pretty a big. Lot of press. And, a lot of press. And uh, I'm excited because uh, you know Shane, the first author, he's also a good friend. Over, you know, it's it's nice to 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 see this one come out. So uh, I'm excited. And uh, for people who are interested in Parkinson's disease, this uh, will be an interesting uh, podcast for you because uh, we really get down to the weeds of um, of cell therapy as a form of a possible cure for at least the motor uh, deficits in Parkinson's disease. So uh, we'll have her take us through it. Uh, what's going on with you? How are you doing? I'm uh, good, man. I'm good. I came back. I was at the uh, Society for Neuroscience, um, you know, meeting out in Washington. I saw some cool stuff. It's like uh, that meeting is like a thirty-five thousand person mess. You know, it's like a traffic <laughs> nightmare trying to find the talk and the poster you want to see. But um, and every year I say like I'm not going to go again, but I always end up going. Um, and actually, this year was wasn't that bad. I actually learned a lot, which I rarely do at these kind of meetings. These meetings are more socializing and networking, but yeah. I learned a bunch of things. I, I went to a, 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 a group of presentations on in vivo reprogramming that our guest, uh, Dr. Malin Palmer, talked on. So maybe we can talk to her a little bit about, about that. Um, it was good, man. Things are good. It's winding down. Uh, everyone out there, happy Thanksgiving. We're taping this right before the holiday. Yost, what are your plans? You going home to the Connecticut there? Now that's your home in both aspects? Yeah, definitely, definitely. Uh, I'm going to be with my brother's wife's family, so it uh, should be fun. Um, I'm excited. Nice. Yeah. So uh, how about um, you? Let's see here. What do we got? I'm trying to think because I don't want to – I know we, we're probably going to talk a lot with uh, – uh, with Dr. Parma, so I don't want to uh, go crazy here with uh, the time. Um, I would like everybody, please, out there, you guys are doing a great job. We got a bunch of people um, uh, going on and putting in their name and email addresses. Um, and uh, please do that. It really would, ha- it's going to help us send you guys information. Uh, so, um, uh, please go on at stemcellpodcast.com, check out the website, and right on the main page, enter in your name and email address, and that way we'll be able to uh, get you better information about the show, um, You know who's coming on, where we'll be, things like this. And what we're going to do every month is pick a name out of the list and give uh, a brand new Stem Cell Podcast show. Which I got, by the way, Yosef, and they're awesome. Yosef is wearing his right now. I'm looking <laughs> you at can it see on me him. wearing it. Yeah. Um, so... What we're going to do here is we're going to pick I got uh I got someone we're going to pick and his name is Daniel McCoy. Nice. So Big Dan. Nice. Big Dan is the winner of the first SCP t-shirt. So Dan, my man, do you know how will, big uh, he is? <laughs> is he a large say it again? or small? Is he a medium? Dan, I don't know. You know what we're going to do, Dan? I have your email address because you entered it. So I'm going to email you after the show uh, and we'll find out your information to make sure you get you a shirt. So everybody, please go to stemcellpodcast.com and enter in your name and your email. Uh, let's see. Uh, we're on Facebook, Twitter at stemcellpodcast and you can email stemcellpodcast at gmail.com. Um, other than that, Yo's 
Uh, I don't really have any announcements. Do you have any announcements here? Or? No, none at all. Uh, that's that's it. So. All right, so let's uh, let's move to the uh, to the science roundup. The uh, science roundup for the stem cell podcast is brought to you by Thermo Fisher. Yosef and I have been talking about this 24 hours of stem cell talks that we gave, the event they held, um, and everybody out there can still go and um, register and listen to the archive talks. They'll be up for quite a while, so. If you go to stemcellpodcast.com, we have a banner there. We just updated it. It should be uh, live by the time this podcast airs. And click on the banner. It's very simple to get there. It'll take you to the registration. You just type in your name. It's free. And you'll have access to all of the talks, including Yosef and I's talks, if you guys want to hear more about what we do. So uh, with that, Yos, my man, what you got? All right. There was a physical review letters uh, study. Does, uh, it's from CERN's Large Hadron Collider near uh, Geneva, Switzerland. They discovered two never-before-seen subatomic particles dubbed XIB carrot, I guess, and XIB star. <laughs> These particles are heavyweight particles known as baryons and like the proton the new particles are made up of three quarks but are more than six times as massive so you can find that in physical review letters there was a pnas study where they used mri to rediscover a part of the brain that has been forgotten for over a hundred years check this out chris it's called the vertical occipital fasciculus or VOF. So this is a white matter track that connects vertically. So we're used to white matter connecting sides of the brain, both you know horizontally. This is a vertical uh, white matter tract, and it was basically forgotten about. It was be- it's believed to be involved in the recognition of faces and reading. And Carl Carl Vernicki was the last person to mention it in an atlas that was checked out of the library in 1912. So everybody forgot about this. He discovered it in 1881. And, you know, 100 years later, we're using MRI to to rediscover this part of the brain. So I thought that was fascinating. You can find that in PNAS, our favorite journal. PNAS! There was a study by a New York spine surgeon that was published in the Surgical Technology International's 25th edition showing that as you bend your neck down to look at your cell phone, the pressure on the neck can grow stronger and actually ruin your back. So make sure you stretch your no, neck come while on, you're looking really? down. Yeah, man, it's it, this is a growing concern. I, if you ride the subway or just look around, half of people are just looking at their phones and they all have that same down head position. So uh, yeah, that's yeah. not good, man. I, I also concerned about posture. Like people are all going to be hunchback in the future. Or <laughs> yeah, like yeah that. and their thumbs are going to be extra large <laughs> from all that typing <laughs> and texting. So uh, there was an alcoholism, alcoholism, uh, clinical and experimental research study showing that alcoholism damages white matter throughout the brain, and the more you drink, the greater damage there is to the inferior frontal gyrus uh this region mediates inhibitory control and decision making so ironically the part that you need to like stop drinking gets damaged um more in uh with in alcoholics uh, so let's see, moving on, there was a neuropsychologica, uh, psychologia study, uh, describing beat deafness, which I had never heard of before. So they, I've heard of people who can like keep a beat or can't dance. This is, uh, an, a new form of congenital amusia or tone deafness. Uh, they had one subject, this one participant who could keep a beat to a metronome, but not merengue. He couldn't even clap or uh, to dance music. That's how 
What? Don't, yeah. So it's very rare, most likely a dysfunction between the auditory cortex and inferior frontal cortex. Can you dance? Just curious. I could dance pretty. I could dance pretty well. I mean, I'm not like so you, you know a beat. popping and locking out there, but I can dance. A bit. <laughs> so you're not twerking every <laughs> out there. All right, good. No, I'm not twerking anything. That's you don't want to see me twerk anyway. Yeah. Uh, another penis study discovering uh, what's causing sea stars to dissolve. I brought this up on one of the science roundups in the past. They call it the sea star associated adenovirus or SSADV. Uh, it's been around for at least 72 years. They dug up some museum samples and found it in sea stars from uh, 72 years ago. And it's unclear why it's killing sea stars right now. So maybe. Uh, due to changes in the environment or uh, controlling their population numbers. Uh, it's primarily happening in like the upper west coast of America. So uh, at least we know it's doing it. Um, another PNAS study of a virus called ATCV1, which is known to attack green algae, but this they're dubbing it the stupidity virus. I don't know if you saw this headline, but ATCV1, it can impair cognitive activity, uh, learning, and memory. The virus was in 44% of their participants, and those who had it performed 10% uh, worse on cognitive tests. So uh, the, they put the virus in mice and found similar results in their you know, uh, performance tests and the warder maze and all these other uh, tests that they did on the mice. So they're dubbing it the stupidity virus. It's pretty That's funny. That's so <laughs> yeah. funny. Um, there's a psychological medicine study looking at 800 gay brothers and found that male homosexuality is linked to a portion of the X chromosome and uh, chromosome 8. So similar data. 800 of, male brothers? Uh, yeah, I guess. Oh, like pairs. Gay, like yeah, look yeah. At pair, like siblings. Yeah. Oh, not one guy with 800 brothers. No, no, that, <laughs> that's a lot of brothers. Um, and that's a lot of gay brothers, too. Yeah, say. Whoa, lot. man, that's, that's, a, that's a crazy pedigree. The, Sorry, go ahead. The X, X chromosome data is similar region found in uh, several animal studies, and but they didn't identify which genes uh, are uh, the actual genes responsible. So uh, we'll see if the gay gene will be found, at least for um, male homosexuals. So, Do you uh, believe there's a gay gene, Lidios? I, I don't Do you believe think there's it's a learned. Genetic- <laughs> I, I don't think it's learned or environmental. So yes, I guess by default. I don't think yes. it's learned either. I'm very curious. I, yeah, I do. I think it's genetic, whether we'll find one specific gene. Not sure. Not yeah, sure. yeah. So uh, there was a science paper uh, describing infanticide uh, where the, you know, the, the, the infants of um, of a nursing mom will be killed off by uh, the male. So this is uh, found in some species. They looked at uh, the mouse lemur, and females may increase promiscuity or uh, what they call paternity dilution to stop males from killing their children, essentially. And uh, this... Uh, forces males to evolve to compete through sperm quantity, leading to larger testicles in their mouse lemurs. So as the testy size increases, uh, the infanticide disappears. So I just found this amazing, like, because certain species of baboons do this, you know, a lot of social uh, animals do this sort of infanticide and this science paper gets to like uh, some of the mechanisms, how it controls, uh, the, the, the breeding, if you will. So 
You find that in science. There was a nature study of a seven years. It was a seven year start, study at Harvard where it suggests that the billions of blood cells that we produce every day uh, may not be made by blood cells, but by less pluripotent descendants. They used a cool uh, technique. Uh, they used a single fish derived transposon to make unique genetic barcodes in DNA of blood stem cells and progenitor cells in mice. And this barcoding tool that they use, I think there's going to be a lot of pay dirt of uh, this technique in the future yeah. in uh, studying you know, where cells come from, from which progenitors they come from. So you can find that in nature. Uh, there was a nature communication study where scientists developed a genetic barcode again to identify uh, where a malaria parasite uh, came from. So you can find that in nature communications. PNAS study developed, uh, PNAS again, just PNAS. A lot of PNAS. How, <laughs> how cartilage uh, cells sense injury causing mechanical strain. They looked at two ion channels in particular, piezo 1 and piezo 2. Piezo 1 sounds real Italian. Piezo. Piezo. Uh, it's yeah. critical for sensing full urinary bladder, like when you're when you got to pee essentially and uh piezo 2 senses gentle touch so both are active in chondrocytes these cartilage uh cells and they use the tarantula venom that blocks these uh ion channels and it protected the joint tissue from dying after compressive injury so you can find that in pnas and real quick i'm gonna talk about a microbiome study showing that 80 million bacteria are transferred during a 10 second kiss. So they also found that couples who kiss nine times a day have significantly shared salivary microbiota, but not tongue microbiota. So uh, I thought that was interesting that a 10 second kiss can, you know, transfer 80 million bacteria. It's just what? like, yeah, I mean, bacteria oh, is so small, it's, but it sounds like crazy. And, I don't know if anyone, well, you guys don't want to know that. Just, ugh. yeah. And finally, that's a, that's a lot of bacteria, man. Yeah, yeah, I know. And just a 10 second kiss. But uh, finally, I just want to talk about this. Uh, we landed on a comet, bro. Did you see that? That we, the Europeans, no. Space, yeah, we landed on a comet. And this comet is huge, but uh, we were able to land on it and it bounced up in the air for like, you know, I think it was like an hour it bounced in the air after it landed and finally landed and got about 60 hours of data because it landed on the dark side of the comet. So the solar power just failed. But in that 60, 60 hours of data, they they recorded this like musical pattern there was a sound oscillations of from the solar activity of uh the electromagnetic waves that were coming off of it so it was essentially wow. a singing comet and they got all this That's cool data awesome. out of it but uh i just think it's cool that we we landed on a comet <laughs> so uh that uh you could uh, you'll you'll just see that uh, everywhere i'm not even going to post a link to that but maybe That's i'll post so a link cool. to the i want to land on a comet yeah i might post a link to the actual seeing that you could uh they have a soundcloud file of this the sound coming from this comet so i thought that was cool and that's it for me. What do you got over on your end? Awesome, man. Um, well, so I, I, I want to say this before I go into my papers. You know, um, you know, I mean, everybody's listening to the Stem Cell Podcast. We didn't mention it at the beginning, um, but we are the official podcast of the International 
Society for Stem Cell Research, the ISSCR. Uh, you can go to isscr.org to uh, you know see what they got going on and read about all their initiatives. Um, there, we talked about it last time. The International Society for Stem Cell Research big meeting this year is in Sweden, uh, and we, you know our guest today is from. Uh, Sweden. So that's uh, cool. So I'm, I'm sure she'll be there. I'm sure she'll be hosting some things. Uh, she's a big stem cell researcher. Um, I think the you can register uh, starting in the early December. So it's coming up soon. So everybody who's in this game or in this world of stem cells, you should try to go. I know there's a lot of uh, travel awards that they do too if you're concerned about costs and uh, you know you can apply for some travel awards to get out to the meeting. Yosef uh, and I are going to be there. We'll have a booth in the middle, not a booth, but we'll have a area in the middle of the floor where we'll have the podcast present uh, uh, so I urge everybody to register for the meeting uh, and check out the ISSCR uh, they really are the uh, kind of the um, I don't know what to say I don't want to say the the leader in the field but they, they really are the, the 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 banner for stem cell research uh, they really are the the big organization so uh, please go to their website and and check them out I want to make sure I give them uh, their due credit because uh, they really have uh, helped out our show and trying to help uh, get our content out to our audience better so. Um, with that, let me move to the stem cell uh, stuff. I, I just got a few because I want to get to uh, the interview. Did you see, Yosef, that they basically saying they cured bubble boy disease? Yeah, I saw With that. stem cells? Yeah. I, I always think of the Seinfeld episode <clears throat> where George goes and visits this guy or Jerry and this guy's in a bubble and uh, <laughs> they end up deflating the bubble by accident at the end of the show <laughs> yeah. and they call him the, the bubble boy, bubble boy. Yeah. Um, so there's a real bubble boy disease and it's, uh, I think it's uh, called um, ADA skid. So it's adenosine deaminase deficient severe combined immunodeficiency. Really, these, these kids, they can't be near anything. I mean, they can get sick and die from routine germs. Uh, so anyone who comes in contact with them has to wear masks uh, and things like this. Uh, they're not allowed to be brought really outside. It's a really terrible, obviously, uh, way to live. So I'm just reading this. There has been over researchers now have treated more than two dozen patients with this uh, new treatment from their own bone marrow cells. So really what the, what the strategy was is that they were to take bone marrow. They could ablate your own cells, right, using, you know, radiation get rid of your uh, stem cell, get rid of your cells, then they would repopulate the marrow with, with donor cells. But the donor cells had to be a match, and that was always the problem. So now what this group is doing, um, I'm looking for the name here. Uh, everything we have, I'll have the links up just in case we can get you the, uh, the details. So um, this is led by Dr. Donald Cohn, uh, children. Hospital, Orange County. Basically, what they were doing, it's like gene therapy. So they were taking the stem cells from the marrow. They were engineering the stem cells to express the proper ADA gene, the one that's mutated, and then repopulating the child's blood with those now corrected blood cells. And what they found was that, in fact, it can, it can, um, it can do that. It can, in fact, uh, repopulate uh, and basically cure uh, if you will, this disease, the kids can go outside now and they're living a normal life. So I That's think this awesome, is uh, awesome an news. incredible discovery. And once again, 
uh, I like to see immediate impacts of stem cell research. So um, you can read about that. I'll put the link up. There was this uh, thing I was reading. It's saying female stem cells could be better for heart repair. Uh, So this was this uh, woman, Doris Taylor, at Texas Heart Institute. And her quote is, we always knew women were awesome. Now we Mm. have the science to back it up. Nice. So uh, what she's saying is that uh, female stem cell strength, or really refers to their number, and that they are more pot- they are more potent than cells derived from males at the same age. And so, at any given age, women will have more stem cells present in the blood, at least uh, as that we age, and women retain more potent stem cells for a longer period of time. Hmm. So, um, you know, sex differences in stem cell potency has been explored, um, and this just you know talks about this and. Uh, you know, presents an interesting, uh, you know, biological phenomena that we can study, but also possibly a technology. Did they, if we're gonna eat, did they say, say what it is? Is it that extra X or is it the Y, absence of the Y, or is it just, you know, it, it is, it, there's been all these studies saying that were they from mothers that had, you know, given birth because stem cells from the fetus transferred to the mom. It, yeah, it, you know, I don't know the details so much. I'm trying to look up where this paper, the study was. This is just like a news hmm. clipping and I'm looking through. It says men seem to have fewer stem cells in their blood but more inflammatory cells. And at the same age, men are not going to have the same number of stem cells as women. So in a situation where women repair, men are instead likely to end up with more damage. So it says that like our blood is more prone to be inflammatory while theirs is more uh, prone to be reparative, oh. which I find interesting um i don't know why we've evolved that way but uh, i guess you need to propagate the woman so maybe you got to keep her around i have no idea that's the evolutionary thing there i'm not really sure anyway um you know they're they're going to continue looking at uh you know um sex differences in research and stem cells so i thought that was a cool thing i'll put the link up uh this is in penis um this is bifunctional ectodermal stem cells around the nail display dual fate homeostasis and adaptive wound response so really what this showed was that there are these progenitor cells next to the nail so like typically they will like kind of there's these stem cells that regrow nail right upon an injury the the balance is tilted towards nail regeneration that they'll start building new nail but these this group found that if you play with some molecules bmps you know you just pick one of the five uh and if you do that reduce bmp signaling it'll tilt the nail towards uh towards an epidermal fate so skin so they're they're thinking about exploiting this technique to generate new skin in the finger or you know on the on the limb there or something like that, hmm. uh, just as a way to um, you know better have uh, a technology to generate new skin or something like that from an endogenous stem cell. So that's kind of cool. Nice. Uh, How are your cuticles in, looking over there? You got some nice cuticles going. You ever have yeah, a manicure? Yeah, dude, I'm not into the like nail repair. <laughs> although I will say I did have I've gotten a manicure before uh-huh. and a pedicure. I actually enjoyed it. Yeah. Uh, it was very relaxing and my nails look great. Now though, oh, man. Now you're hooked. Really... <laughs> you're hooked. Yeah, I know. It's like a drug going on. I mean, now I know why these girls are like, you know, Man, I got to get a manicure. I'm like, when did you go? I went last week. I'm like, damn. Um, all right. This is in Stem Cell Reports. It's out of the lab of Magdalena Goetz. Uh, oh, Sox yeah. Two. I saw that. Yeah, yeah, saw that? It's really cool. Yeah. Sox2 mediated conversion of NG2 glia into induced neurons. Um, so we'll, we'll talk about the in the adult in, uh, injured cerebral cortex. We'll talk to Malin about this, this kind of in vivo conversion. And so, you know, the cortex in the adult lacks the 
real capacity to replace degenerated neurons. So here they show that they can do retrovirus-mediated expression of SOX2 and ASCL1, which I think is MASH1. Yeah. Uh, but they show that just SOX2 alone can induce the conversion of fate-mapped NG2 so they can track their cells are putting their viruses or these genes into. And these are NG2, which is a glial precursor, mm. uh, and that turned them into double court and positive neurons. Uh, and so they were able to show um, that, um, you know, they had they they these, these by electrophysiology that these new neurons were receiving synaptic inputs. So here presents a new way to generate neurons in the brain without having to put cells in. You just kind of turn another cell type into those so converting resident glia yeah but yeah. here's the thing i here's the question i have and this is maybe random we don't talk about it right now don't you need those glia like what if you convert a hundred thousand glia to now neurons like yeah, doesn't that affect something it's I probably mean, a one shot deal away. yeah so you you only get one stroke repair mechanism i guess yeah one I, shot I, don't, I don't know that's an interesting <laughs> but that's all all right this was in uh so that was in stem cell reports this is in cell stem cell uh, the lab of Sangmi Chung, uh, HSPC, uh, pluripotent stem cell derived maturing GABAergic interneurons, ameliorate seizures and abnormal behavior in epileptic mice. So this is a huge area of neuroscience studying how you can use stem cells to alleviate epilepsy and seizures. There's 65 million people worldwide with seizure disorders. That's an incredible amount. Um, and so... Here they've uh, derived interneurons uh, from pluripotent cells, um, and they um, they they put them into the brain. And they show, as they're maturing, they migrate extensively and integrate dysfunctional circuitry of the epileptic mouse brain. Then they use the optogenetics, Yos, which is I know you're into. It's kind of hot right now. Now uh, they can find that these grafted neurons generate inhibitory postsynaptic responses. Uh, and even before they acquire full electrophysiological maturation, they were capable of suppressing seizures and ameliorating behavioral abnormalities. So this is a really cool study. They use a lot of high technology there um, and some promising results in epilepsy. Check that out. Nice. Um, this, is a, this, is a re- this is a commentary on a paper that was published, um, I believe it was in, where is it? Uh, I'm not sure where it was, but I'll put the link up. Um, and they, you know, they were doing SCNT, Yos, and they were they compared um, SCNT. You know, somatic things, cell nuclear transfer. Somatic cell nuclear transfer. You know, they were saying that, like, you know, with uh, if you, this is still a viable way of making kind of patient matched embryonic stem cells rather mm. than making IPS. But they were, you know, how the, you know, how the mitochondria contain DNA that's kind of foreign, right? Um, they were they were concerned that if you because you're taking a donor nucleus which would have some donor my, mitochondria I think I'm explaining that correct I don't know um, um, that that mitochondria present in the ES cell might elicit an immune response so it wouldn't necessarily be perfectly matched and this study showed that they showed that they called it this thing stem cells created cloning created by cloning get micro mitochondrial baggage <laughs> so like there's there's this problem where they think they're getting a, eliciting an immune response. Because of the this um, you yeah. know uh, mitochondria, so that's really cool. Check that out. I'm going to do uh, one how, thing. Real- how are the how's the immune system finding these you know intracellular mitochondrial DNA? 
I guess I, it I, gets I have no idea. Out or it's just when the cells came out. Die. So I really get to read it in detail. It's called SCNT derived ESCs with mismatched mitochondria trigger an immune response in allogeneic hosts. Yeah. It's in cell stem cell. We'll read it over a little better and give you a better report next time. Um, dynamics of oligodendrocyte generation and myelination in the human brain at Jonas Friesen's lab. He uses this carbon fourteen nuclear bomb dating of people that were exposed to carbon fourteen. Uh, that incorporate this this carbon into their newly born oligodendrocytes. And what he's shown is that the um, number of oligodendrocytes established in children remains stable for their life. Mm. And mm. that um, the rate of myelination can go up, that, that there's actual myelination going on, but it's not due to an increase in oligodendrocytes. So they conclude that oligos, mature oligos, can actually create myelin, which a lot of people have always thought it was the oligo precursor cells that generate the myelin. Here they're showing that the uh, adult uh, oligos can, in fact, and this is from real human data, which is a crazy methodology of how he labels it. Exploring yeah, I love that, that thing. That, uh, uh, so that, you can check that out in, um, in Cell. That was actually in Cell Press. It's an article, so that was really cool. So I think I'll end here, and the last is the paper that we're going to talk to Malin about. It's human ESC-derived dopamine neurons show similar preclinical efficacy and potency to fetal neurons, fetal neurons when grafted into a rat model of Parkinson's disease. So we'll, we can end it there. Okay, Chris, why don't you bring on our guests? All right, so this is great. So we have a, a great guest, which is timely with um, with a paper that's been published and some mainstream news. Uh, for Yosef and I, maybe it's a little more dear to our hearts since we have or still are um, in the world and studying Parkinson's disease. And uh, our guest, uh, Dr. Malin Palmer, is is really, uh, you know, when we talk about stem cells for therapy, uh, we hear this term stem, stem cell translation or translational stem cell biology. And Dr. Palmer is really, really there uh, trying to take uh, stem cell biology in the lab and push it towards the clinic and in particular in the realm of Parkinson's disease. And so she's a, an associate professor of developmental regenerative neurobiology at the Wallenberg Neuroscience Center in London University in Sweden. Um, and really the focus of her work, as I said, alluded to is in, in, in the world of, of, of Parkinson's, but really looking at trying to understand cell fate specification, which is something that um, really intrigues me and got me into um, stem cell biology, understanding how progenitors and stem cells can can differentiate into the different cell types of the nervous system. Uh, and so uh, really excited to talk with you today. Welcome to the show, Dr. Palmer. How are you? Thank you. I'm great. So would you just maybe start for the audience that might not be familiar with your background as much, just tell us a little bit about you, your research background, how you kind of got into stem cell biology and, and, and le like kind of leading into what your lab's doing today. Yeah, so I definitely didn't have a um, clear path towards uh, stem cell biology uh, early on in my uh, university career. I uh, was living in Sweden as a teenager and was quite um, thinking that was the smallest, the most boring country in the world, and I wanted to uh, see and experience something else. So I went to uh, Canada for my um, undergraduate degree. And while I was in Canada, I realized that uh, I needed some uh, cash for all my extracurricular activities, and I wasn't allowed to work on campus. So... Um, I got a job in the section for developmental biology, uh, taking care of their sea urchins uh, for research. And uh, 
working in that lab and working on sea urchin development I just found was so extremely cool and interesting. So that turned me on to developmental biology, which I then ended up uh, focusing my studies on for the rest of my undergrad, just and also doing a master's on in Canada. And, and uh, so I think people don't. Sorry, Yos. I don't think still people don't understand. Maybe the new age of stem cell uh, trainees and biologists. I'm sure they know, but. Uh, stem cells are at the heart of all development, right? I mean, when we talk about development, we talk about um, progenitor cells, things that are, un, you know, kind of still naive and deciding on what to behave. So I guess that was how your transition happened towards stem cell biology. Yeah, so then I went on to do my PhD in developmental biology, and I studied how the forebrain was formed. And, of course, the, the cells in the adult brain comes from neural stem cells in the brain, and that uh, got me into the stem cell biology. But initially, I only studied this process in vivo. Uh, but then towards the end of my PhD, uh, where you kind of learn to how neurons are formed normally in the brain, uh, we also start to culture these cells outside the brain and see if we can direct their differentiation in the brain. So that was at the very tail end of my PhD uh, where I started to think about controlling the cells because the, the first four years I only studied how they were controlled by the environment in the developing brain. And then once we took these cells out and looked at them in the culture dish, uh, it was kind of cool to then see instead if you can control the cells yourself, if you can give the cell... Uh, so we had this immature neural stem cells in a culture dish, and we wanted to see if we could control their differentiation into specific type of neurons. So, Gray, I didn't know you had worked with sea urchins in the past, so that's cool. Um, so when did you actually link up with uh, Anders Bjorklund? Anybody who's in the field of uh, Parkinson's disease uh, sort of knows him as like the Pope or grandfather of this research. He's been he's published thousands of papers, and uh, I, I know he's... Uh, He's at your center, I guess. The director is he the director there, or? Um... Uh, well, the, um, he's not uh, formally the director of the Vallenberg Neuroscience Center, but he still holds the professorship in neurobiology here. Mm-hmm. Uh, Vallenberg Neuroscience Center actually don't have a director, so if we had one, it would be uh, it would be Anders. Uh, and did uh, he recruit you, or? Um, how, how no, did I, I, I did my PhD with a great uh, scientist called Kenny Campbell. Hmm. I, 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 I got to say, I grew up, I grew up, this is sounds so funny, I grew up on Kenny Campbell. I, I learned so much from reading Kenny Campbell uh, when I was a grad student, uh, when I was studying forebrain development, um, particularly those early, early uh, transplantation studies of cell fate and uh, really, really beautiful work. Sorry for that. You just took me down memory lane for a minute. Yes, Kenny is a great, uh, great, great person to work with. He, so Kenny Campbell did his PhD with Anders Bjork. And then he did a postdoc in the in New York, mm-hmm. and then he came back to Lund to start up his own research group. And I joined Kenny and his group. I see for my PhD. So I did my PhD with forebrain development with Kenny Campbell. But then towards the end of my PhD, when I had less than a year left, Kenny moved to a new position at the Children's Hospital in Cincinnati, and I was left here with my projects and uh, a supervisor from a distance. So at this point. Uh, Anders, I think, felt a bit sorry for me, and he uh, helped me uh, finish off uh, all the work in the last year. And then after that, I did a first postdoc with Anders here in Lund. 
So this seems like a rather uh, familiar path to myself. And my PhD, I studied for brain development and then moved to uh, a lab that was doing uh, dopaminergic, kind of more midbrain, non-forebrain uh, development and things like that. So uh, that's kind of cool. So then, so you got into, is that where you obviously started to get into the world of dopaminergic neurons and then Parkinson's disease? Yes. So... When I started working with Anders, I still worked on forebrain a bit, but also he got me more and more interested in, in the development of the midbrain neurons and stem cells uh, for then cell therapy for Parkinson's disease. So that's how I got into the midbrain. Great. So uh, I guess we should transition to this uh, most recent paper. So it's gotten a lot of press, wouldn't you say, Chris? <laughs> um, yeah, a lot of press. I love to see it too, especially again in uh, in in when it re- uh, I mean it's biased when it relates to our research. I'm glad that it's moving forward so quickly. So uh, I guess we should start with congratulations. And uh, Yosef and I uh, talked to Shane. Uh, Graylish, who is the first author on the paper at the ISSCR meeting. Remember that, Yosef? Yeah, Shane's a good a, friend. So. He had a poster yeah. or something. Uh, was it a poster, Yosef, or something? And he, yes. and he showed us some of the data. And we, I remember I was trying to have a conversation with Yosef, and he wouldn't talk to me because he was just staring at these beautiful images <laughs> of the graphs. And he's just, you know, it's really intense. So, um, for uh, you know, so I guess and it's a lot of work into this paper. So, um, and uh, please, why don't you start maybe by giving us you know an overview of what you were trying to accomplish with the with the study and, and how it fits in your overall direction. Yeah, so I guess I can just start with saying that Shane has done a fantastic job in this study. He has worked on this for many many years. Mm-hmm. So uh, he's been, of course, the lead person uh, producing most of the data in this study, and then supported by many many other people here in Lund and also with our collaborators in Paris. Uh, but. This study, so after, when I worked with Andres first in my postdoc, we tried to make dopamine neurons from neurospheres or from NSLs or any kind of neural stem cell culture and never really succeeded. So after about two years of failing, I turned to embryonic stem cells. And at that point, I did a second postdoc uh, at the Institute for uh, Stem Cell Research in Edinburgh when Austin Smith and Meng Lee was there. And that's when I learned to culture uh, embryonic stem cells. And when I came back to Lund, we started to develop protocols for generating uh, functional dopamine neurons from embryonic stem cells. And quite early on, uh, I was joined in my group by uh, another very talented postdoc, uh, Agnette Kirkeby. She worked uh, with us. Which I think has worked with some of you guys in uh, New York for a while. Yeah, Agnette, she sat at my bench during my (laughs) postdoc. So, hi, Agnette, if you're listening. (laughs) So, she worked night and day for uh, quite some time to set up the protocol for generating dopamine neurons from human embryonic stem cells, which there was no real good protocol at the time. And for many reasons, uh, the the early attempts uh, failed. And then... Uh, we realized uh, from actually back to the field of developmental biology that uh, the dopamine neurons come from a very specific structure in the brain called the floor plate. And then again, our paths cross again because we, of course, knew then that you had developed the floor plate differentiation protocol. And then Agnete worked on how we could pattern these floor plate cells to make specific uh, dopamine neurons uh, that resemble those in the midbrain. So we published a protocol for this in 2011, and at the same time, we started to test these cells uh, more directed towards evaluating them uh, for use in patients. Uh, 
So in this new study, we looked at the cells for much longer term time points in the rat model, and we looked with functional imaging, and we looked with uh, behavioral recovery, and we also look at the ability of these cells to grow very long distances in the brain and connect with the right targets. So and in Lund, we also have a long-standing tradition of cell therapy for Parkinson's disease, and we have a program where we transplant uh, fetal dopamine neurons to patients. So this means that we have access to the real thing, which are the fetal dopamine neurons. So in this study, we did a side-by-side comparison with the fetal dopamine neurons that you find in the, in the developing human brain and compared in equal number the ES-derived dopamine neurons to see if they function in a similar way. We managed to then show that the neurons that we generate from the stem cells, they, uh, they function and grow uh, projections uh, in exactly the same way as the cells in the, in the fetal brain. Uh, we should also give a little background as to how bad the situation was before these new protocols came out for making dopamine neurons. It was about 10 to 15%, maybe 20% of yield. And now uh, we've sort of pushed it up over the last five years to to about half, would you say, 50% of the cells uh, from human ES are dopaminergic, whereas in the fetal grafts, it's maybe 10 to 20% of the cells are dopaminergic? Eighty percent uh, uh, of the cells in our ES cultures are uh, midbrain pattern pr- uh, dopamine progenitors. Okay, in so, the field, yeah. it depends on the age of the embryo and the, how tight you do the dissection, but mm-hmm. it's often about twenty percent. Okay. The old protocols were, as you say, not so good, both because the number of dopamine neurons were low, mm-hmm. but I also think that the uh, the dopamine neurons that were generated were not fully authentic. Mm-hmm. So they had some right. properties of dopamine neurons, but they didn't really resemble the dopamine neurons in the midbrain, which are the ones you lose in Parkinson's disease. That's right. I remember actually um, sitting with Lorenz when I first got to uh, the lab, and he was basically explaining to me the problem that we were having when you're we trying to take these dopamine neurons that were being made and grafting them and they just wouldn't survive and so then i would look at them in the dish and i would look at them what they would express and you know coming from a forebrain background uh, development i noticed that we were taking these you know progenitors through this forebrain ride and it just didn't seem right something about the development didn't seem right which led us to go to the floor plate and subsequent um once they express the appropriate markers, I know that makes sense, and gone through the right developmental uh, correlate, uh, they worked. So it 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 just it just it always the more you can know about the developmental biology, obviously, the better your cellular engineering, and we've really seen that a lot in Parkinson's. I think one of the unique things in this study is a lot of people still out there set, might say something like, "Well, you know, embryonic stem cells are great." And they can derive, we can make lots of cells, but it's still in vitro. It's not real. And we don't necessarily know if it's going to be anything like in vivo. So in this study, quite uniquely, you were able to compare it directly to an in vivo correlate and show that the cells generated from these embryonic stem cells can, in fact, mimic something like a cell that would come from the brain. I think that's actually, that's very important. And, and it's, you know, one of the major impacts of the study. And not many people have the access to that to do so. Mm-hmm. And, of course, these fetal cells that we use for comparison, they're the ones that have been used in clinical trials in patients with Parkinson's disease, where in some of the cases have had very good effects of these cells. 
So we know that they are the real cells because they come from the real human brain. And we also know that in the in the cell therapy setting, these cells uh, have the potential to uh, restore the dopamine transmission in the PD uh, brain. So the best we can do before we go to clinical trial is to compare them as close as possible with the stem cell derived dopamine neurons. And this is what we've done in this study. So now I think that the next step will be to produce these cells under conditions that's compliant with clinical use. And we're currently doing this in an EU network called Neurostem Cell Repair. Mm. Uh, we should maybe get a little bit within the weeds of the study and uh, talk about some of the uh, terms that we use in the field, uh, A9 being the, the target that we want, uh, the, the substantia nigra, which are, is more susceptible in Parkinson's, versus A10, which is uh, known as the VTA, or ventral tegmental area. So uh, what we want is A9, and uh, one of the problems in the field is dis, di, uh, differentiating between A9 versus A10. And uh, you, you guys did a lot of work on uh, trying to distinguish what type of dopamine neuron you're grafting. So uh, can, can you maybe expand on that, the whole OTX2 uh, story? Uh, that, that Well, not story, results that you, you found. Yeah, so as you say... Uh, the cells that you want are the A9 dopamine neurons. They're the ones that are lost in Parkinson's disease. Uh, it's okay to also have the A10 neurons. They will not be harmful in any way, mm. but you need a good proportion of A9 neurons. And this is not very easy to study because the A9, A10 terminology is based on where these cells uh, sit in the brain and where they project to. So as soon as you take a cell out of the brain, you lose the reference point for A9 and A10, and you don't really know what you have. So then there are some markers that can be used, and that the field uses extensively. Uh, we call them GERC and Kelbinden, for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, but these are not perfect markers, and they're certainly not perfect in a culture dish. So what we did in this study is that we also, because normally in a clinical trial uh, with the fetal cells or in the animal models, we don't actually transplant the cells back to the nigra where they normally sit, uh, but we transplant them to the uh, structure in the forebrain called the stratum, which is where they have their action, where they release their dopamine and act. So in most, uh, if not all, preclinical assessment studies, the cells are placed in the stratum because that mimics the clinical situation. But we wanted to look at this A9, A10 phenotype more carefully, so we transplanted them back into the nigra. And then we left them for six months and see where they, uh, what structures they, they regrew into. And we then saw that the wild-type ESLs uh, could connect both, both with the A9-specific structures and the A10-specific structures. We know we have both components in our ES uh, preparations. Mm. And then, interesting, we also saw that we can actually shift the A9, A10 uh, character of the cells by expressing factors that are important again during development. So we chose to overexpress OTX2, which is uh, expressed in both A9 and A10 during early development, but is only expressed in the A10 compartment uh, in the adult brain. Mm. When we overexpressed A10 in the ES cells, uh, they no longer seeked out the A9 target structures and they exclusively went to the A10 target structures. 
Great, great. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's fair. That's the, really, really cool. One of the problems in the field is we just don't have great markers for A9 versus A10. We just, like you said, it's a regional thing. Yeah, so of course, we also use Gerd and Kjellbinden, which is the markers that most people use, but there's not a large correlation between expressing GERC 2 and projecting to the A9 structures. Right, right. Now, can I, on that note, I just want to talk about this for, 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 for everyone out there who hasn't read the paper. Please do. I mean, it's, what's incredible to me is the amount of innervation, so how far these cells have spread out and reached out into the brain. You know, there's always something. You know, people say, well, first got to make the neurons. Okay, well, then they got to graft and they got to live. Okay, well, then they got to reach their target. It's always one, one, one. So you, the, the amount of... Um, uh, innervation or how far these neurons actually went it was, in, it was incredible the pictures are just amazing so is this something you've seen before were you expecting this i mean it's really quite impressive well uh, it has been very little done with intranigal grafting but anders has done a few studies uh, a long long time ago with fetal cells and shane has worked uh, with anders doing his phd and anders and shane and a couple of other people have studied uh, mouse-to-mouse grass, for example. But the human uh, ES-drive neurons could regrow to that capacity. It was, uh, it was quite a, su- a pleasant surprise to us. Yeah, we we actually interviewed Shane briefly in our ISSCR conference talk last uh, uh, this year, and uh, d- he gave us a little handout and showed us these graphs before the actual paper came out. And like Chris said, I was in awe, and he's he's very talented with the grafting and the assessment of the grafts. So it was really a feat. I mean, anybody who's tried to you know graft into the substantia nigra, this is really hard to do uh grafting wise and um it's you know kudos to him for pulling it off especially with both human es and human fetal tissue so you know somebody coming from the grafting field it's just it's it's really impressive work so uh congratulations there uh, yeah i'm impressed by shane almost every day yeah so i guess he's going off to med school now is that what's going on reason he decided he wanted to be a medical doctor so he's now in oxford uh, in first year medical school oh, studying God. upper limb anatomy last time i heard from oh, him. oh man <laughs> he must love libraries <laughs> so you know i guess uh, i guess before you know time gets a gets away with us i know yosef and i can talk for hours but we don't have hours so i i, I was talking with Malin before we went on the show i was at uh, the society for neuroscience meeting and uh, um you know she gave a talk in a, in a session i was talking about in vivo programming so for the audience this is a way that you can convert one cell in the brain or in the body and in the organism to another cell by introducing a genetic factor or something and so you can take cell x and turn it into cell y without having to take that cell out and so obviously this is really exciting because you can imagine for the diseases you might be able to convert cells next to an air cells that are dying and kind of to take their place so um you know, I wonder if you would speak a little bit about the reprogramming. I know you're doing this in the lab, and if you could talk a little bit about why you think it has an application for Parkinson's disease. Yeah, so of course, Parkinson's disease is often studied in terms of cell therapy, and that's because it's a very suitable disease for cell therapy because it's one type of neuron that is lost, and it has its action in one structure of the brain. So all you would need to do, if you say all, Uh, is that you need to uh, replace one type of neuron in one place in the brain. So this is the most simple system uh, to to replace the neurons and then um, 
uh, get the, the positive benefits of these new neurons in the brain. So we've done, uh, traditionally in Lund, they've developed fetal cell therapy with Anders and Lindvall in the lead of this. And then we turn to stem cells to generate neurons in large numbers. What's also interesting to do and what my group is working on is instead of using cells at all, uh, it would be possible to directly reprogram uh, glia in the brain uh, into dopamine neurons. And that way you kind of replace new, you put in new dopamine neurons, but you don't have to put in new cells. And so that, that is a lot of interesting implications as well. I know from just being here now with uh, someone in my uh, institute who's uh, getting ready to go to the FDA for, you know, INDs. You know, when you take a cell, um, when you take something out or you're dealing of someone's body and you engineer it and put it back or you're taking a cell and engineering it somehow and putting it into somebody, there's a different set of requirements, at least in this country, you know. And then if you're doing this directly in the patient, you don't have to remove any cells or deal with cells. There might be, uh, I don't know if it will be easier route, but, um, you know, maybe it's a little bit uh, uh, dif- different in terms of the FDA of how you deal with that just by administering something into the, the body as putting a foreign cell type in or something like I that. I think that this, uh, this field is still in the very beginning, but I think it's quite promising and it's much more appealing to introduce uh, a combination of viruses that will generate your dopamine neurons directly in the brain. And from a translational aspect, it's going to be much, much easier uh, than it is to introduce a new cell into the brain. Is, is, is the idea to do that in the caudate putamen or in the stri- I mean, in the substantia nigra? Because do you picture the reprogrammed glia, you know, extending axons all the way back to the caudate? Uh, or is- no, I think that it, when you talk about the long-term perspective of putting stem cells or reprogrammed cells in patients, mm. you would always put them in the caudate putamen, which is okay. a human equivalent of the stratum. Mm. Uh, which is where the target, which is where which the nigra projects. Yeah, I just want to make sure everyone understands that. Have, this is where they have their action. This is where the cells act. Mm. So the reason we transplant them to the nigra in our rat model is that the rat stratum is quite small. So if you want to look at innovation and long-distance specificity, it's almost impossible to do this in a, in a small structure. So we want to challenge the cells by placing them in the nigra. In terms of uh, where we would put them in the patient, they would still be into the caudate and putamen. So the, also the in vivo reprogramming, we would reprogram cells locally in the place where you want them to be. Okay, great. Yeah, because um, we, we should just clear that up. And one thing, uh, at the conference, we also interviewed Roger Barker. And uh, one thing that we were surprised about is he was more uh, bullish, if you will, on human ES cell-derived dopamine neurons as opposed to IPS-derived uh, cells. And he, I, I guess he was more skeptical that somebody with Parkinson's reprogramming their cells and making dopamine neurons, that those dopamine neurons would also be uh, susceptible to the disease. Um, and I was just wondering, uh, where do you fall on that? Because it's sort of a cost-benefit analysis of not needing um, you know, um, immunosuppressant uh, for your own cells versus uh, taking uh, wild-type human ES dopamine neurons and using them for cell therapy. I, and I, I would say I'm more on the IPS cell, you know, just to 
choose a side here. Um, but I was wondering, I, is it clear? I mean, is, is there evidence that the disease would be recapitulated in a reprogrammed cell by starting over? Uh, you know, uh, is there any evidence to think that, you know, a reprogrammed cell would be susceptible at this point? Well, so Roger is, of course, a very good friend of mine and a colleague in these EU networks that we work. And I think he's right that, to me also, ESLs is the way to go initially. Mm. Uh, the brain is an immunoprivileged site, so to use iPS cells have little advantages, although it could have some in terms of the immunological response. And it has never been formally tested, and the, the way to test this would be almost... Uh, it would be very difficult, but there is a, a, a risk that uh, if you reprogram your own skin cells, for example, either directly into dopamine neurons or via an iPS cell into dopamine neuron, uh, that cell uh, would somehow be affected by the disease and uh, after tr- five years after transplantation might also then develop uh, Parkinson's disease in these new neurons. Of course, you could do iPS cells or IN cells, these induced neurons from a matched donor, and you wouldn't have the same problem. Uh, but uh, we are uh, working in the, our European networks towards developing one cell product from an ESL. Mm. And I know our American partners uh, that is funded by the New York Stem Cell Foundation and led by Lauren Studer uh, are also trying to develop one cell product, which is also from ESLs. And the Japanese team that we collaborate with also, our teams have joined, uh, we've formed a global alliance uh, to try to uh, help each other with trial designs and cell production and uh, going through the legislations in the different countries. Uh, The Japanese are going for the IPS cell line, but it will still only be one cell product. So in the initial phases, uh, you wouldn't get the the benefit of having like, you know, your own IPS cells or a matched donor IPS cell. So still in the very early days and the cell production and certification is a bit of a nightmare. So ESLs, I think, uh, is my favorite candidate. Uh, I'm not saying that IPS cells or ion cells uh, will not uh, be a better choice in the end. Uh, but then, if you're going to reprogram the cells, I would just reprogram them directly in the brain. Because mm-hmm. if you do an IPS cell or an ion cell, you still need to reprogram them. So if you're going to go down that path... You might as well do it in situ there. Might as well do it in situ, and then you're actually not working with cell therapy, then you're working with gene therapy. Yeah, I, I just love the idea of this G-force, this global force of uh, the world's superheroes of science to tackle uh, Parkinson's. So, uh, yeah, but you know what, Yosa? I think that's such a great idea. Mark, yeah. I was talking to Mark about it. I think it's such a great idea and, and should be happening where scientists come together on a common goal to try to use expertise and, and you know, science is competitive, obviously, but it's for the same. I mean, we're all for the same thing here. We're trying to help people. So yeah. I'm glad to see that there's that global effort to share knowledge. I uh, mean, I must, that must be very helpful to sit around. I hope it is sit around the table. And, in terms of regulation, know, like there's yeah, things that say, they hey, can you're do. doing this or yeah. you've done it. Like what, what's, cause you know, I talked to Mark and other people who are trying to do these, GMP and all this stuff, and there's a lot of stuff to know, and it can be a headache. So it's it's nice to to sit with people that are going through the same thing, right? To to hash it out. Yes, absolutely. I think the GeForce will speed up the the field by like at least 
two or three years, mm. we'll do the first clinical trial like years earlier than we, than we would have without the G-force. Yeah. So with that, with that question, um, you know, we ask we ask our guests a lot, and this is this would be more relevant to you. You know, when you're when you're in a when you're doing work, especially in a clinical, what has very, uh, immediate clinical correlates like like your work, and it gets a lot of press. You must get a lot of these questions, and so what we like to ask for for the people out in our audience that not necessarily scientists, but might be a little more lay, and they want to say, okay, so. Or have you cured Parkinson's disease? Or you know, are, is this is this a viable therapy? You know, how long down the road? I, I don't, I don't want to ask you that question because I know what that's like to get that as the question as a scientist. But you feel very obviously, um, you feel really great about where you are with the research in Parkinson's disease, and it's your opinion that you will see a a, a new therapy from this technology in the near future. Yes, yeah, so I think that cell therapy is not a cure for Parkinson's disease and never will be. Sure. It's a way to replace the lost neurons, and by replacing the neurons that are lost, you replace the function that, that you lost when you lost the neurons. Uh, we're in uh, Europe in a network called TransEuro. We're doing another fetal cell uh, clinical trial uh, where Lund is one of the transplantation sites, and we just cleared all the the regulatory um, or the cleared the preclinical work and we're, re- we're ready to initiate transplantations in patients very soon. Um, and with the stem cells, I think that we now show that these stem cells work as well as the fetal cells. So this is a huge step in the field. Then you need to keep in mind that we're producing these cells right now under GMP conditions, which you need to do to use them in the clinic and then uh, do safety testing and efficacy testing on the GNP-produced cells. So this we're doing within this EU network, Neurostem Cell Repair, and that will, if all goes ideally according to plan, will be finished in 2018. So already you're quite a few years into the future. Wow, that's, yeah, but... And that's about the same time schedule as uh, other teams in the G-Force work on as well. And then the first trials will be what we call safety trials and maybe dosage trials uh, and not necessarily designed to reach maximal efficacy. You should also remember that the readout of these trials are it will take at least a year or two after transplantation before you see the full effect. So it's a very long it's going really in the you know in in my terms it's going really really fast. For the patients with Parkinson's disease, it's not going fast right. enough. Sure. Right, right. But there's no doubt that there's been tremendous strides. That's for sure. I mean, I've I've haven't been in the field for long. I mean, I mean, field. I'm saying, you know, in the world of uh, midbrain and Parkinson's. And since I've joined the field, which was about 2007, 2008, it's about six years now. We've gone from you know, very making very little neurons that live to the study you published. So it's made incredible strides in five years or so. So I imagine as the technology keeps advancing and, uh, you know, we'll, we'll, we're going to get there. We're going to get there. It's like you said, it's you got to be careful and cautious and go through all the rules and regulations, but the technology exists. So, um, yes, uh, that's the ketchup effect we're seeing because I think that in the last, as you say, in the last five years, more has happened than in the previous 20 years yeah. in terms of generating dopamine neurons from uh, stem cells. And I remember there's uh, Andres Birkland that I work very closely with. He was interviewed for the BBC in the late 80s, and he said, well, you know, now we transplant the fetal cells, and all we need to do is to generate dopamine neurons from stem cells. 
and he was thinking that this would be an, uh, an easy task and uh, yeah. certainly worked hard at this. And I spent uh, a couple of years uh, working with the neurospheres and NSLs and all these type of cultures to generate dopamine neurons, and they consistently failed. Uh, and not until the human ESLs and the new protocols, we really have a cell uh, that we can use to generate uh, authentic dopamine neurons from. So I think that these last couple of years have been extremely exciting and a lot of things will happen in the next couple of years, but it will be kind of the 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 less fun work that is the production and the and the safety testing sure. and the regulatory aspects. But this is very important uh, part of the work, and this will take some time. Well, I mean, it's fantastic. It's awesome. I'm really excited, and I'm sure everyone else out there in the stem cell and just science world has read these. It was everywhere in the news, so I'm sure people read it. So, um, congrats on a great on a great story and great work. And I think what we'll do, since we ran really out of time, is we're, we were talking to Malin before the show, and we asked her, we put her on the spot to ask her if she would have a funny story for us. And she said that she would think while while we were talking. So, did you? I'm wondering, have you come up with something? If you haven't, it's totally cool. But if you have, and you would like to share a funny story with the Stem Cell Podcast audience, <laughs> uh, I think they would love to love to hear something. Uh, I do have many uh, funny stories, most of them not suitable for a uh, podcast, but I can tell you one funny thing that's up. Lauren Studer is, is, of course, a leader in this field and has taken the human embryonic stem cell work uh, so far in the last couple of years. And he's always been, uh, I've always been a big fan of his work and, I mean, your guys' work as well. So we had another EU network called uh, Neuro Stem Cell where we wanted to interact closer with Lawrence and his team. And we one year invited him to one of our meetings in uh, Greece on a very small island. And uh, unfortunately, we got stuck on the island on the day that we were supposed to return to the mainland because of the storm, and he missed his flight to go back to New York. And we all felt quite embarrassed about that. But then we invited him back for our yearly meeting in Bellagio and sent an email saying, well, if you can guarantee that I can come home on time. And we all said, yes, of course, there'll be no trouble this year. That was the year of the volcano on Iceland. So uh, we, all the Europeans left uh, Lawrence and a couple of other Americans uh, for one week in Bellagio, and the rest of us uh, all took trains <laughs> and buses uh, home. Yeah, oh, I was man. there you know that year, and that? It, it I was, remember it was that. great. I remember, I remember talking to Yosef and Mark Tomishima and texting them or emailing them and saying, and they're saying, we're stuck in Bellagio. And I'm saying to myself, I don't feel bad for you right now. <laughs> you guys are stuck in Bellagio <laughs> right now. <laughs> It was, well, as organizers, we felt quite bad, but then uh, Lawrence is a great guy, and actually after this uh, thing, he joined our EU consortium, and that was a fantastic asset to work with him and his team for the remainder of years. But I think that whenever he comes to Europe uh, to interact with the EU networks or with his G-Force, he's probably slightly worried that he's not going to get home. <laughs> get back in time, yeah. <laughs> I, I remember that that those five days in stuck in paradise. It felt like uh, it was quite quite a scene. We were we were stranded out there, but it was like the best place to be stranded. So uh, 
I didn't know he had gotten stuck the year before in Greece, though. That, that's funny. So. Yeah, he got stuck on, on Hydra the year before that. Oh, man. And the Bloom team teamed up with the Cardiff team, and we had a fantastic train ride, uh, train, bus, boat, taxi ride uh, through Europe, and it took us two days to get home, but it was... Uh, was team building exercise. Yeah, it was. That's for sure. It was. Well, yeah. listen, thank you so much for giving us the time. I know you're busy and um, good good luck with keep you know keeping this moving forward and everyone please go out and uh, read the paper in Cell Stem Cell. Um, it's it's a really it's really awesome and again, congrats and look forward to seeing more of your work and talking to you in the future. Thank you so much. Thanks guys. No All right, problem. take Have care. A good day. See you. Bye. So All that right. was a great interview. Uh, I know Yosef uh, you know we're a little closer to that research, but I'm really glad to see the Parkinson's field moving forward towards yeah. the clinic. Yeah, they're um, in such a unique situation. They've got access to fetal tissue that you know in America we just can't do that sort of research. So it's it's really great that they were able to do that study and put, bring it all together and find some really valuable findings for the field. So I think we're going to close it up with a rant. I think Joseph might want to rant about the work being done outside of his house right now. If you guys hear that, <laughs> people banging. And, of course, once we're recording, people start doing construction work. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, but we I'm won't. Not gonna we're going to rant about, about – this is something that really bothers me. It always has. And to, it, it's fresh on my mind because I was just at the meeting, Society for Neuroscience. And at this meeting, there's so many people. They have like 10 spe- speakers in a session. They're 15-minute talks, right? And because there's 30,000 people there – you, 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 your people are running from talk within a session. So let's say I want to see the third talk in this session and I want to see the fifth talk in another session. Okay. People never keep to time on a talk and it piss it, dude. It's one of the things that drives me insane. If you have 15 <laughs> minutes, people will talk for 30. You know, yeah. if you have like 20 minutes, people will talk for 40. Now, when you do that, and because you want to get all your stuff up and you don't really care, you've thrown off a day's worth of scheduling. So now I'm running across the whole freaking convention center to get to the third talk. And when I get there, I'm still on the first talk. Mm. And now I'm like all messed up. My time frame is off. And there are moderators, right, who are supposed to be there moderating and shutting it down, but they don't. I mean, I don't understand, man. Have you ever moderated or like what's going on with these? Mo- I, I want to moderate from the audience. I want to get up and be like, uh, sorry, sir, your 20 minutes are now up. We yeah. should keep this moving. I think we need uh, one of those wrap it up buttons from Chappelle's show or on like uh, the Apollo. Remember that show late night at the Apollo? They would have that guy come on and just like, yeah, the, just like the, hook. the thing, like the a gong show or <laughs> yeah, something. Yeah, the hook that pulls them off the stage. Or uh, right now we have like a bi weekly lab meeting where members of the lab present like 10. 15 minutes and after 15 minutes an alarm goes off so just to tell people okay wrap it up because you know when you're dealing with five people talking for going over time by even five minutes that's an extra you know half an hour there or it, it there's got to be a wrap it up button for science. I'm, I'm so in favor of a loud beeping noise. I like a loud one, not something mild, like a loud beep that just beeps after 15 minutes um, where it can't be a misunderstood that your talk is now over. And if you're not done, you got to wrap it up. You get these people, you know, these guys when they're like, okay, you know, it's time. Do I have, they go, do I have any time left? Is there any time? And you're like, no, you have no time. All right, let me just go through these last three slides. Says, wait, wait, wait a minute. We just said there's no time. And then they go through the last three slides. So maybe this is just fresh on my mind, especially at a big meeting. But um, one of the biggest things, and this is for two, for younger trainees, people out there who are going to give talks, one of the things 
you always want to be concerned about what's in your talk. I'm nervous. Never go over time. You should always plan to go under time. The worst thing is being in a in a presentation where someone is talking way too long past. It it, it, it even if it was the best talk you've ever heard, it yeah. just kills the mood. Yeah, wrap kills it up. It. Everybody's got, especially at these conferences when you have uh, so many people talking in a panel. So if everybody goes over, like I said, five minutes, it just really extends and throws off people's schedules who want to you know go to different talks. So I think at these panel discussions, it really really matters. Um, more than just like one seminar that is just for one hour slotted time slot. So speaking of wrap it up, we need to wrap this one. Yeah, up. let's wrap it up. Happy Thanksgiving, <laughs> yeah, Yost, man. Enjoy, Thanksgiving, uh, enjoy the day. Yeah, and uh, I'll see you after the holidays. Yeah, man. Happy Thanksgiving, everyone out right. there. We'll see you on the next one. Uh, thanks for listening.